Well, if you have your Bibles with you once again, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 19. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 578. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the book of Psalms for the summer. And we've come to Psalm 19 this morning. I'm going to speak for a few minutes on this subject, the sky, the scriptures, and you. Psalm 19. And this is what the Word of God says. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims its handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In his book, he is there and he is not silent. Francis Schaeffer said, The infinite personal God is there, but also he is not silent. That changes the whole world. He is there and is not silent, nor far off God. David echoed Schaefer's statement in Psalm 19 as he composed this song for God's people to sing as they rejoiced in the ways God reveals himself. Pause for just a moment, would you? Don't you hate it when that happens? This psalm magnifies the God who continually communicates through his general revelation and through his special revelation to reveal himself to us. General revelation is God's self-disclosure through creation. This revelation is available to all people and it provides basic foundational truths about God's existence and God's attributes. On the other hand, special revelation is God's manifested greatness to people through his inspired word, the Bible. And this revelation is special 
because it goes beyond the elementary truths of general revelation and it testifies to how a person may know this great God and how he or she may live in a manner that is pleasing to God. And Psalm 19 records both of these revelations, general and special. In this hymn of praise, which is a psalm of David, David testifies that God has revealed himself to mankind through both general revelation and special revelation, through his world and through his word. And David begins this psalm with the heavens and the sky. He moves to the scriptures and he ends with us, the readers. And as one commentator says, it is God's intention in communicating through all the splendor of nature and through all the specifics of his word to reach us, his people. So the sky, the scriptures, and you. Would you notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 through 6, the proclamation of God's revelation. And notice that David begins this psalm proclaiming the glory and greatness of God displayed in creation. And in verse 1, David testifies to the majesty and to the power of God, saying that God uses the heavens and the sky above to declare His glory and to proclaim His handiwork. The word heavens that he uses is a plural noun form that literally means the heights or that which is raised up or lofty. And this word is describing the realms of outer space in which the stars and the moon and the planets exist. And according to David, these heavens declare God's glory. So what is this glory that the heavens are declaring? Well, glory is the sum total of God's character and His attributes. And the root behind this word literally means weight. And when it's used of a person, it refers to someone who is weighty, someone who is important, someone who is impressive. It also refers to the evidence and outward display that goes with this importance and with this weight. And so David is really telling us that the heavens tell us how weighty and how impressive and how powerful God is. Alan Ross in his commentary on the psalm says to speak of God's glory is to speak of his intrinsic value, what gives God his importance. And anyone looking at the universe and understanding that God created all of this by his powerful word could come to no other conclusion than that he is the most important person in existence ever. No one else could ever come close to God in importance. Now notice the text. David not only points us to the heavens, he directs our attention to the fact that the sky above proclaims God's handiwork. And the word sky that he uses refers to the lower atmosphere surrounding the earth, the breathable atmosphere that blankets the earth and contains the clouds and the weather and the birds and the winds. And this sky proclaims God's handiwork. And His handiwork implies power and ability and care and precision 
and intricacy. And you'll notice that David says the heavens and the sky together declare and proclaim. And these words declare and proclaim are used in continuous ongoing action and can literally be translated that they keep on declaring and they keep on proclaiming. And so what David is summarizing and teaching us in verse number one is that all of creation, both the heavens and the sky, join in a harmonious chorus, continually celebrating God's existence as well as God's excellencies. And in verse number two, you'll notice that he reinforces the point of verse one, telling us that day by day, creation pours out speech about God. And night by night, creation reveals the knowledge of God. And when David says that it pours out, it literally means that it overflows, that day by day and night by night, creation overflows in testifying and declaring and proclaiming the excellencies and the glory of God. One commentator described it this way, creation cannot contain itself. It constantly proclaims the glory of God. Dale Ralph Davis said the heavens and skies are simply bursting to tell us of their maker and keep pumping out their testimony about him. And according to David, the majestic universe surrounding us contains this message of God's general revelation, this message of his character, of his eternal power and his goodness and his wisdom and his kindness and his faithfulness. And day by day and night by night, it overflows in declaring and proclaiming the weightiness, the importance, the glory of God. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1 about creation. You've heard me read this verse before, friends, and it is such a relevant passage of Scripture. I'll read it again in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Do you hear that? What can be known about God is plain because God has revealed it and God has shown it through his general revelation. And Paul says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. God's creation clearly, plainly testifies of his glory, of his power, of his divine nature. And it testifies so loudly of the glory of God that Paul says in summary that every single person that has ever been born into this world stands before this creator, glorious, holy God without excuse. That creation daily and nightly overflows in testifying that all of us are accountable to this creator God. And in verses 3 and 4, David continues his proclamation proclamation of the glory and greatness of God, stating that even though creation does not speak audible words that can be heard, creation's voice goes out, do you see it in the text, throughout all the earth and to the end of the world. And he says in verse 3, 
There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So regardless of the time of day, regardless of the season of the year, regardless of our location, regardless of our language, if we look up and we look around us, creation is declaring and proclaiming the sovereignty and the glory of God. That's why Chuck Swindoll said, don't let anyone tell you that God has hidden himself from the world. Every intelligent being lives every waking moment under the constant reminder of God's sovereignty and power and presence. Only stubborn unbelief causes humanity to miss this message. And that's it. It's our sin. It's our pride. It's our stubbornness that suppresses the truth that creation declares and proclaims on a daily basis. Because if what creation is testifying is true, then it means that we're accountable to somebody greater than us. And none of us want to be accountable to anybody else. We want to do our own thing, our own way. And that's why we reject this truth about creation. At the end of verses 4 and in verses 5 and 6, David concludes this proclamation of the glory of God in creation by using the sun as a specific illustration of how nature testifies to the wisdom and to the power of God. And in verse 4, David likens the, sun, the sky as a tent for the sun. And in verse 5, he says, as the sun rises, it is like a bridegroom coming out of its bridal chamber on his wedding day, headed for his bride, full of joy and radiant beauty. And in verses 5 and 6, once the sun rises, it takes on the nature of an athlete, and it runs its course with joy, and he summarizes this illustration saying, nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun. And just like the sun, God's glory, God's power, and God's wisdom shine over all of the world so that we can see and feel his weightiness. Nothing is hidden from this God. And friends, in these opening six verses, we can draw at least five important applications. And they're very simple. They're coming straight from the text. Number one, from creation, we can know God exists. Creation testifies of a creator. And I'm telling you this morning, that you can say that is not true and you can believe in your heart that it's not true, that creation doesn't testify to a creator, but I'm telling you this morning, you're wrong. You are wrong because the word of God is right and you will submit to the word of God. You'll either submit to it now or you'll submit to it one day when you stand before Jesus face to face. Creation testifies of the creator. Number two, all people everywhere have this visual knowledge. Nature overflows with the knowledge of God day and night. And this knowledge is not verbal, it is visible. It is heard with our eyes, not with our ears. And so you're just simply suppressing the truth this morning if you say, I can't see it, I can't hear it. Because creation is testifying to you. It woke you up in the middle of last night testifying to you through the thunderstorm. One more evidence do you need? It's your sin that has blinded your eyes and put wax in your ears to keep you from hearing and seeing the glory and the things of God. Number three, 
Creation informs everyone that God is powerful and glorious and he is creator and that we are accountable to him and we are left without an excuse for our unbelief. There is no excuse for unbelief when you stand before God because he's made it clear to you that he exists. Ah, I've lost what number I'm on. Number four, those who deny the existence of God do so by suppressing and holding back the truth. That's the summary. That is God's summary of it. People who do not believe creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 simply suppress the truth. They overintellectualize it. They suppress the truth in their blindness of their unbelief and their sin. And that is what God says about it, friends. I'm just repeating to you what he has said about it in his word. And number five. Those who deny the testimony of creation to the existence of God. Listen, listen carefully to what I'm about to say because we just celebrated a month of it. When they deny the existence of God through creation, you end up worshiping and serving creation. And you end up worshiping and serving yourself. So that you become so full of pride that you will stand unashamedly in your sin for all the world to see before God thinking that he will accept you like that it is the height of folly it is the height of sin and shame and we don't even blush about it anymore but there will be blushing and tears one day when we stand before Jesus we deny it because we want to worship ourselves. We want to become our own God. And David says in these first six verses that God has proclaimed his weightiness and his glory for everyone to see. And you can't deny it. We not only see the proclamation of God's revelation, we see the power of God's revelation in verses 7 through 9. Now keep your Bible open. There's a significant shift that takes place at this point in the text. First, the change goes from God in verses 1 to 6 to Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your Bible in verses 7 and through 9. The word God is Elohim. It refers to God as the mighty one, the powerful one, the one who spoke and creation came into existence. The word Lord is Yahweh. It is the covenant-keeping name of God. It says that God is not merely powerful. He is a person with whom we're able to have a personal relationship with. And so David shifts in the text from Elohim to Yahweh. And the second change that takes place is from the glory of God's creation to the grandeur and comprehensiveness of the written word of God. And so while creation reveals the existence and power of God, Scripture reveals the only way to know God. That's why one commentator described this fundamental change in the text this way. If the first part tells of the glory of God, the second part tells of his will. If the first part emphasizes that all creation is dominated by the Son, the second part affirms that all life is dominated by God's word. And the abrupt change from the first section to the second section gives more force to the contrast. 
The revelation of God in his word is far greater than the revelation of God in creation. Do you hear that? As powerful as God's revelation is in creation, his revelation in his word is more powerful. It reveals to us the God whom we are accountable to and the God in whom we can have a relationship with. And so in verses 7 to 9, this is what David does. He makes six parallel statements and he gives six titles, six characteristics, and six effects of the word of God. And they're simply laid out for us, and I'm going to walk you right through them. Keep your Bible open. Number one, it is perfect and reviving in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And the word law that he uses to describe the word of God refers to the Torah. It comes from a root meaning to project or teach. And it refers to any direction or instruction flowing from the word of God that points out or indicates God's will to us. It not only refers to God's moral law and his civil law and his ceremonial law, but it encompasses all of the teaching and all of the doctrine of the word of God. And David is teaching us, friends, that this law of the Lord points us to what is right and it points us to what is wrong. And it becomes the binding standard by which you and I must live. And notice what the text says in verse 7, that according to David, this law, this manual on human behavior is perfect. It is complete and comprehensive. It cannot be added to and it cannot be subtracted from. And David is teaching us that there is no part of our lives and no problem that we will ever face that the word of God does not adequately address. And he says that the law of the Lord is so perfect that it does a perfect work of reviving our soul. This word reviving is a powerful word. It literally means to give new life. It is a similar word that is used in Psalm 23.3 where David says, And God restores my soul. The idea is not of spiritual conversion. It is of reviving and invigorating someone who is exhausted. Someone who is worn out by trouble or calamity. And so the law of the Lord is perfect. It is complete and comprehensive. And when you're faced with trouble and calamity and difficulty and you're worn out and weary in your walk, this law, this word of God revives your soul, the inner part of you that will never die and last forever. And it brings you back to where you belong. It renews and revives you. Secondly, he says it's sure and wise. At the end of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. Testimony means to bear witness. And it's used of the Ten Commandments that summarize God's law and were placed in the Ark of the Covenant as a witness to the character of God. And David says that the word of God is God's testimony of who he is and of what he's done and of what he is going to do in the future. And it is also a testimony of his will and his purpose for our lives. And he says that the witness of God that he bears of himself in his word is sure. It is true. It is trustworthy. It is stable. It is dependable. 
He's saying that you can always trust the word of God to lead you to the truth and to lead you on the right path. And he says that the testimony of the Lord is so sure, it takes the simple and it makes them wise. Now, who are the simple? Well, when the word simple is used in scripture and it's really used a lot in the book of Proverbs, it always comes with an emphasis of warning. And it comes from a root word that means an open door. And if you think about the picture of an open door, when a door is open, anything can come in and anything can go out. And when it's used of a person as an open door, it is describing someone who is naive, someone who is ignorant, someone who lacks understanding and knowledge, someone who is unable to discern truth from error. They're oblivious to danger, and because they're open-minded, they're susceptible to false teaching. And David says that the testimony that God bears of himself in his word is so true, it is so trustworthy, it can take someone like the simple, and it can make them wise. It can give them skill in living wisely. It can teach them how to live a disciplined and productive life for their family and for their marriage and for their parenting and for their church family and for their workplace. That they can take someone simple and make them wise and disciplined and productive. The Word of God is that powerful, friends. It can change the tone of your home. It can change the way you talk to one another in your home, the way you relate to one another in your home. It can change, friends, the way you drive. It can. It can change the way you think. It can give you discernment and skill in living. It is that powerful. In verse 8, he says it's right and it's rejoicing. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The word precepts is a word of poetry, and it's used in the plural, and it refers to an authoritative charge that is binding on someone. God's word is authoritative, and it is binding on all of our lives. And David says these precepts are right. They put us in the right direction. They send us on the right path through all of the complexities of life and they steer us in the right direction. He would testify of it in Psalm 119 in verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And David says in verse number 8, when the word of God is at work in our lives and we're walking in its path, our heart rejoices and our lives overflow with joy. Because we're moving in the right direction and we're making right decisions and we're living a life that is pleasing to God. Jeremiah the prophet testified of the joy and the power of God's word this way in Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. He ate the word of God. He meditated on it. He feasted on it. And they became the joy of his heart and his life. Because it led him in the right direction. And listen to me this morning. If you don't hear anything else I say about the word of God from this text. Hear this sentence. 
God's word is the word to the path of joy. That if you want joy in your life, you have to get on the path of the word of God. You'll never experience it apart from the word of God in your life. Ever. Number four. In verse eight, he says it's pure and enlightening. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. This, again, speaks of authority. It speaks of the Word of God being appointed to us and ordained by God. It is an imperative body of commands that God gives to us. Let me say it to you this way, friends. The Bible that is sitting on your lap this morning is not a book of suggestions. It is a book of commandments. And these commandments flow from the love of God's heart. Because God is sovereign over the universe. He has total authority over all things. And He commands His people, don't do this, it will harm you. Do this, it will help you. And every time we see these commands, it is an issue of life or death for us. And notice what He says about these commands. They're pure. They're absent of sin and malice and corrupting influence. They're not dark or vague or contaminated. And David is teaching us that the word of God is clear. It's not vague. It is so clear that it enlightens the eyes. And we've seen this phrase in the book of Psalms before. We saw it in Psalm 13. And it refers back to 1 Samuel 14 when Jonathan in his pursuit of the Philistines, got weary and weak, and he ate honey, and his eyes were enlightened. He was energized. And do you see what David is saying? Yahweh's commands have an energizing effect on our life. They refresh us and renew the strength of God's weary people. Most of us think that God's commands restrict us. David corrects our thinking, and he says, God's commands don't restrict you. God's commands actually energize you. They empower you. They help you. Number five, I believe. It is clean and enduring. Verse nine, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Notice how he refers to the word of God. He refers to it as the fear of the Lord. Because according to Deuteronomy 4.10, that was the purpose of the word of God, the law. It was to put fear in the people of God so they would have a reverence and an awe and a respect for God so that it would cause them to worship this God who's given them these commands with reverence and awe. And David says that the word of God reveals God's holiness in such a way that it can only be referred to as being clean. There's no defilement or imperfection in the Word of God. It is completely flawless, just as God is completely flawless. That's why David said in Psalm 12, 6, Your words are pure words, God. And the Word of God is so clean and pure, it shows us the purity and the holiness of God. And when we see the holiness and the purity of God through His Word, it should bring reverence and awe and worship to our lives. And friends, don't miss what David is teaching us about the Word in this description. It is a source of stability for your life. We are surrounded with fear. We are surrounded with anxiety. We are surrounded with all kinds of things that are 
pumped into our lives to cause us to live in fear and to live in chaos and to live in worry. And some of us are crumbling under the weight of all of this. And the Word of God is actually the antidote to all of that that is happening around us because the Word of God shows us who and what we should revere, who and what we should fear, who and what we should worship. And the only thing that we should fear and worship and reverence is God Himself. He's not given us a spirit of fear, the Bible says. He's given us a spirit of power and a sound mind and self-control. And as we encounter this holy, powerful God on the pages of Scripture, it should lead us to stand in awe and worship and reverence of Him and forget about all of these lesser fears in life. It really is our stability And the reason why you may be feeling so shaky today is because you're not building your life on the Word of God. It's your stability. And finally, at the end of verse 9, he says it's true and righteous. The rules of the Lord are true and they're righteous all together. The word rules speaks of judicial language and a judicial decision that that becomes a precedent and a binding law. David says the word of God is binding upon us. It is true. It's never false. It's never off the mark. It is reliable and it is stable. And it leads us to righteousness. That's why Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word of God has a sanctifying effect on our lives. It makes us more like its author. So what do we do with all of these descriptions and examples of the Word of God? Well, we need to remember that the Word of God is God's law. It's God's testimony. It's God's precepts. It's God's commands. It's God's fear. And it's God's rules. We need to remember that it's perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. And it's true. We need to remember that God's word totally transforms a person, making the undiscerning skilled in all aspects of living. It produces joy in our lives, and it makes the dark things light, and it endures forever. We need to remember that the word of God is relevant for every culture. It is relevant for every place. It is relevant for every age, and it is relevant for every person. The word of God never needs to be updated, friends. It is always applicable, always true, and it will always endure forever. And so I'm going to ask you two simple questions this morning about the Word of God, this special revelation. What is your relationship to the Word of God this morning? See, what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, I want you to think back over your life this past week. And I want you to think about what your relationship was like with the Word of God this past week. Did it leave your car after you left church last Sunday? Did it stay on your bookshelf? Did it stay on your coffee table? What's your relationship with the Word? What is your relationship with the Word in comparison to your relationship with the world? Because I'm submitting to you this morning, friends based on personal experience in my life, that if your relationship with the world is struggling, it is probably because you're struggling in your relationship with God's Word.
Because when God's word has its proper place and priority in your life, it changes how you feel and view everything. It changes it all. And here's my second question. What do you need the word of God to do in your life today? Do you need revived? Do you need energized? Do you need led in a right direction on a right path? in a decision that you're making today? Do you need correction over a sin that you're struggling with that you can't give victory? The Word of God is powerful to do all of those things. When we not only see the proclamation of God's revelation and the power of God's revelation, look in verses 10 and 11. We see the preciousness of God's revelation. Look at these two verses. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Do you know what David is doing here, friends? He doesn't want you just to see what God's word is like. He wants you to say at the end of verses 7 through 9, I must have the word of God. I can't live without it. I can't go on another moment, another day, another hour, another week, another year without the Word of God. I must have it. And in verse 10, David says that because God's Word is so powerful, we should desire it more than gold, even much fine gold. David is teaching us the value of God's Word as if verses 7 through 9 were not enough to convince you of its value. David is saying now it is so powerful, it is so rich that we should desire it more than gold. And the word desired that he uses here is a powerful word. It often carries a negative coloring. It is the verb of the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. It describes the tree Eve contemplated as covetable for the wisdom it could give in Genesis 3.6. And it is the verb that Achan uses in confessing why he kept the plunder in the siege of Jericho in Joshua 7. And the psalmist implies that there is a holy coveting that we should have. That there is a pure lust that should consume us. And do you know what it is? It's the desire for the Bible. Have you ever thought about the Bible like that? That's what David is teaching you. That you should have an all-consuming desire for the Word of God. That it's more valuable than anything this world has to offer. And then notice, additionally, at the end of verse 10, David says, because God's Word's so powerful... It's not only a treasure to be desired, it is a taste that is to be delighted in. He says it's sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And he's teaching us that the Word of God is the only thing that can satisfy our spiritual hunger and our spiritual thirst. Moreover, in verse 11, David continues to emphasize the preciousness of the Word of God, declaring that the Word of God warns us. It alerts us to sin. It alerts us to spiritual danger. It becomes a spiritual watchdog over our lives, directing our steps, guarding our paths, keeping us from evil and wickedness. 
I love Psalm 119 and verse 9. And David says, how can a young man keep his way pure? And listen to how he answers it. By guarding it according to your word. Teenagers, do you want to stay pure? Your parents pray for your purity. Your pastors pray for your purity. Do you want to stay pure? The Bible says the way you stay pure is by guarding your life according to the principles of the word of God. Men, you want to stay pure from pornography and sexual immorality? The way you do that is by guarding your life with the word of God. By treating the word of God as such a precious commodity in your life. You are consumed more by it than by your sin. And by the way, this is just for free. You shouldn't read your Bible on the same screen that you're watching pornography. Get a real Bible, put it in your lap, put your phone away, gaze into it, meditate on it, soak it up. It's part of the reason why you can't get victory over that. You're trying to do holy things with the same thing that you use for unholiness and ungodliness. Get a real Bible. I know it's not popular to say that, and now all the young people think I'm a dinosaur. But here's what I want to say to you about that. I've been walking with God for a while now, and I understand the difference between meditating on a screen and meditating on something in black and white in front of you with paper. There's a difference. There's a difference. Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What's he talking about? Memorizing Scripture. Don't just guard your life with the word. Memorize it. Pour it into you. And David says, that's how I keep from sinning against you, God. I've memorized your word and it's become such a part of me that it just overflows in my life and it reminds me of danger and evil and sin and wickedness. And notice how he ends verse 11. God's word is so precious and powerful to David. He says, in keeping it, there's great reward. When you study Psalm 1, when you study Psalm 119, do you know what you find over and over? Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who meditates on the Word of God, who is consumed by the Word of God, who keeps the Word of God and obeys the Word of God. And so I ask you, dear friends, is the Word of God precious to you? Is it precious to you? How many hours of TV did you watch this past week compared to to how much you read your Bible? How much news did you take in instead of Scripture? You say, oh, I can't memorize the Word of God, Pastor. I'm too old. I'll admit to you, it gets harder the older you get. I've been working on one section for a long time and I still can't get it. But you memorize phone numbers. You memorize bank account numbers. You memorize favorite lines from your shows and your movies. You remember what the news told you today. And you want your pastor to believe that you can't remember the Bible? 
Really? Is it precious to you? There's reward in it. And listen, I understand the audience I'm speaking to today. You came because you're serious people, because you know that you're not going to hear fluff. And you know that you're not going to be entertained. But do you know that you can come and be a serious person and just check all the boxes and say, I, I just take it for granted. Pastor Darren studying. He's worked hard all week. He's filled with the Spirit. He's ready to go. He's going to be on fire. I can just sit back. It's all good. You can come in with that kind of attitude and not treat the Word of God as precious. It is possible. You can just go through the motions. And David is challenging us, friends. It's not just the sky and it's not just Scripture. It is you. It is me. Is the Word precious to us? That's the question. Because I'm telling you what the psalmist says. That God has exalted above all things His name and His Word. And it will endure forever. And it's what we'll be held accountable to. Is it precious to us? Well, finally... We not only see the proclamation of God's revelation and the power of God's revelation and the preciousness of God's revelation, we see the prayer concerning God's revelation in verses 12 to 14. These verses are so powerful. I want you to note them carefully with me. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do you see how he began his prayer? With a rhetorical question. Who can discern their errors? And do you know what the answer is? It's obvious. Apart from the word of God, no one can. No one can discern their errors on their own. None of us can fathom the deceit in our hearts. None of us can untangle the web of self-deception. How many times have you and I said, looking back, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Oh, why did I do that? And you think you're going to discern all of your errors on your own? No, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can really know them and understand them other than God? And that's why we need his word. And that's the whole point of David's prayer as he ends this psalm. None of us can discern our errors. So we need the word of God to help us in life. And so David prays in verse 12, God, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Now, keep your Bible open because I'm, I'm going to try to do this quickly. I'm going to show you three sins that he gives here that we all struggle with. And this will really help us. Hidden faults, what are those? They're sins of ignorance. They're sins we don't see or realize that we've committed. They're unintentional or inadvertent. We don't see them, but other people see them. God sees them. Derek Kidner defines the hidden faults this way. A fault may be hidden not because it's too small to see, but because it's too characteristic in our lives to register. That hurts. It's just a part of our life. We don't even recognize it. And notice what David is praying. 
David is praying that the word of God is so powerful and has an illuminating effect on our lives that it can reveal our hidden faults, those sins that go unnoticed in our lives and become a part of our character that we never see. And the word of God can illuminate those things in our lives and lead us to repentance and confession and restoration. And listen to your pastor. We need to pray verse 12 because we don't see ourselves clearly. We think we do, but we don't. That's why we need to pray this prayer. Then notice in verse 13, David mentions a second sin. He asked God to keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Oh, listen carefully, friend. This may help someone this morning. What is a presumptuous sin? It's a sin that we commit because we think we know better than God. This sin is intentional. It's arrogant. It's defiant. It is with forethought, and it is with rebellion. It is the type of sin where we say to ourselves with our eyes wide open, I know God says not to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Sins of presumption. We say to ourselves, I don't care what God thinks. I'm going to do what I want to do. And when you're caught up in sins like this, it's why your relationship with God is never right. How how can it ever be right when you stand in complete and utter rebellion before him? When you've disdained and disregarded his word so much that you think it has no authority over your life. You can just do whatever you want to do and live however you want to live and talk how you want to talk. And it'll all be okay. And you notice how David's responding to this. God, keep me back from this. God, Preserve me in such a way through your word that I never fall into sin like this. And notice the end of the prayer. And God, don't let it have dominion over me. Oh, friends, that is insightful because when you are sinning in rebellion like this, you get ensnared. Proverbs says you get trapped in the cords of your own sin. And you just get bound tighter and tighter and you find it more and more restricting. And you can't get out of it on your own because you're dominated by it. It has dominion over you. And David is praying, God, use your word in my life in such a way that it warns me and it keeps me away from this kind of living, away from this kind of sin, away from this kind of rebellion. And then notice how he ends with the third sin in verse 13. Great transgression. Do you know what? It's a very difficult phrase to interpret. One commentator I found helpful, he said, it's really describing apostasy. It's rejecting the faith and walking away from it. Deconstructing. Does that sound familiar? Deconstructing. Do you see the progression? It starts with hidden faults that go unnoticed that build up in your life over time that are never dealt with. And then it moves to presumptuous sins where you're just living in an outright rebellion before God. You're not right with Him. You're not right with the other people in your life. Because you've never dealt with your sin. Because you're not connected to the Word of God. You deconstruct. 
great transgression. You cross over the line. And you're just consumed by all of your sin. You don't think we need to pray prayers like that? You don't think we need to pray and ask God to keep our kids from that kind of sin? You don't think you need to pray for your husband that way? To pray for your wife that way? That he would be a man of the word, that she would be a man of the a woman of the word, excuse me? You don't think we need to pray like that? David did. And notice how he ends. Most quoted words probably in the Bible. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do you know why he prayed that? Because he knew that when his words were impacted by the word of God, and when his meditations and the thoughts of his heart and life were in keeping with his meditations on the word of God, that they would be pleasing and acceptable to his life, to God. Let me, let me illustrate it for you. I promise I'm going to stop. I don't want to, but I'm going to. Here's how I picture David. Here's how I picture him. He's got the Torah, the law, and he's sitting alone with God. He's reading it. He's meditating over it. He's looking up in the hillside as he's watching all the sheep. And he sees the sky proclaiming God's glory. And then he's reading about the glory that the sky is proclaiming. Oh, God, you're perfect. You're sure. You're right. You're trustworthy. God, I want to be a man of God. Like, this world is dangerous. My wife needs me to be a man of God. My children need me to be a man of God. I need to be a man of prayer, a man of God, a man of your word. And so God, take this and pour it in me so that I think like you think. And I talk like you talk. And I love what you love. And my attitude is different. And my temper is different. And my patience is different. And my self-control is different. And I'm holy. Because you are. And God, I can't do it. I need you to do it. So make my meditation and my thoughts like you and your word. It's the only way I'll be acceptable to you. You're my rock. You're my stability. You're my strength. And you're my redeemer. You're the one who sent your son to die for me so that all of this could be possible. And God, you've bought me from sin. So help me to live for you. You're my redeemer. You don't need to pray that. You don't need to live under that kind of influence. That kind of influence will change your marriage. It'll change your parenting. It'll change your work life. It'll change your personal life. It'll change your worship life. It'll change everything about you. 
when you pray like that. That's how David prayed. And so I ask you this morning, is God your rock? Is he your strength and your stability? Is his word what feeds you and nourishes you and helps you and changes you? And most importantly, is he your redeemer? Oh, dear friend, Jesus Christ died on the cross to buy you and purchase you out of your sin. And he paid the complete price to set you free from your hidden faults, from your presumptuous sins, and from your great transgression. And if you'll turn to him today and believe in what he did for you on the cross and confess with your mouth that he's your Lord and Savior, he'll save you. Oh, the sky, it declares the glory of God. And the scriptures, they declare the glory of God. And God does that so we will be drawn to him. Let's pray.